0: Part Three, Chapter Six of A Student's History of American Literature, by William Simons. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Reading by Matt Berard. Chapter Six, Part Three, Writers of New York and Pennsylvania. For some time our attention has been centered for the most part in the work of our New England writers but we must not think that the literary activity of this long period was confined to the immediate vicinity of boston the cities of philadelphia and new york had each its coterie of literary workers in the rapidly growing metropolis the generation following that of irving and his associates of the knickerbocker group was not without its representatives of greater or less distinction among whom at least two Bayard Taylor and George William Curtis deserve especial recognition both were men of letters in the broadest sense versatile in talent and giving expression to that talent in varied literary forms taylor was born in a quaker household upon a pennsylvania farm and as a child was conscious of two ambitions to travel and to become a poet his literary ambition was gratified prematurely by the publication of a volume of verse, Zemina, afterward regretted in 1844. In the same year, his twentieth, he sailed for England, having a ranch with several editors to print the letters which he purposed to write, while on his travels. For nearly two years he tramped about over Europe, enduring much hardship. His letters were published in 1846 under the title of views afoot or europe seen with the knapsack and staff an editorial connection with the new york tribune followed and in eighteen forty nine taylor was sent to california to report upon the fortunes of the gold seekers the next year his letters to the tribune appeared in the volume el dorado a trip to the far east in eighteen fifty one resulted not only in more correspondence but also in a volume of verse, Poems of the Orient, 1854, containing some of his best compositions, including the Bedouin song. Bayard Taylor's fame as a traveler and an entertaining descriptive writer was extended by successive volumes recounting his experiences in Africa, in Spain, in India, China, and Japan, and in the northern countries of Europe. But he was ambitious to fill a higher place in literature. In eighteen sixty-three, he produced his first novel, Hannah Thurston, and the next year his second, John Godfrey's Fortunes, which is to some extent autobiographical. The story of Kennet, 1866, a semi-historical romance, is his most successful work of fiction. A long and elaborate narrative poem. The Picture of St. John, 1866, was followed by The Mask of the Gods, 1872, and Lars, a pastoral of Norway, 1873. Other volumes of verse were published in the latter years of his life, including the National Ode, written for the centennial at Philadelphia in 1876. But no one of Taylor's original efforts resulted in any enduring success he wrote tirelessly and unceasingly, yet without that inspiration which gives immortality to the works of genius. His one achievement, which will most certainly endure, is the translation of Goethe's Faust, the two parts of which were published in 1870 and 1871. This altogether admirable version of the German poet's masterpiece ranks with Bryant's, Homer, and Longfellow's Dante, if it does not surpass them in this delicately difficult field of poetical translation. Only a portion of Taylor's literary labor is recorded here. He was an indefatigable worker, and his health broke down under the steady strain. In 1778 he was appointed minister to Germany, and it seemed peculiarly appropriate that the translator of germany's great classic should be thus honored his appointment was universally approved for the poet was widely respected and in the circle of his literary associates greatly loved he was welcomed at berlin as irving had been at the court of spain but his diplomatic career was pathetically brief death came upon him suddenly as he sat in his library at the german capital in december of the year of his appointment the boyhood of george william curtis was spent in providence rhode island but his family removed to new york when he was fifteen years old He was still in his teens when he with an older brother entered the brook farm community at about the time that hawthorne joined it three or four years of foreign travel including a visit to egypt and syria resulted in two volumes of description and impression nile notes of a hawaji eighteen fifty one and the hawaji in syria eighteen fifty two lotus eating eighteen fifty two presents another series of travel sketches in the potiphar papers eighteen fifty three he satirized some tendencies in new york society during the decade just preceding the civil war curtis participated not only as a writer but also as a public speaker in the great debate on slavery and laid the foundation of his later fame as one of the most forceful and graceful of american orators a reputation maintained to the end of his career in eighteen fifty six curtis published a charming little work of light and delicate sentiment entitled crew and i a work which was exceedingly popular at the time and which retains its popularity still trumps an experiment in novel writing appeared in eighteen sixty one the chief claim of curtis to literary distinction however is as an essayist for nearly fifty years he was associated editorially with harper's magazine and throughout that period contributed regularly those delightful papers essays in miniature which we associate with the department so sympathetically named the easy chair something of the addisonian flavor with more of the spirit of charles lamb is to be recognized in these vivacious contributions of comment criticism and reminiscence nevertheless curtis was as much a master of a style distinctly his own as was the author of the autocrat three volumes of selections from these papers have been published some of the essays appearing in an expanded form two volumes of orations and addresses have also appeared including the eulogies on wendell phillips and james russell lowell josiah gilbert holland was a massachusetts physician when he left his professional practice and like taylor and curtis entered journalism in new york over the pen-name timothy dr holland while editor of the springfield mass republican wrote a series of familiar essays letters of wholesome counsel which were received with favor in book form under the title timothy titcomb's letters eighteen fifty eight the publication of two volumes of verse the bay path eighteen fifty seven and bittersweet eighteen fifty eight gave him a place among the popular poets which was reinforced by the appearance of Kathrina, a sentimental romance in metre in eighteen sixty seven dr holland's claims to literary distinction are not especially strong but his novels miss gilbert's career eighteen sixty arthur bonnecastle eighteen seventy three seven oaks eighteen seventy five and nicholas mentor eighteen seventy seven were widely read In 1870, he became the editor of the new Scribner's Magazine, which in 1881 changed its name to The Century. Donald Grant Mitchell, a member of the same interesting group of genial essayists who long survived the rest, is the author of two delightful books which, like Curtis's Prue and I, still retain a popularity hardly diminished by the lapse of a generation reveries of a bachelor was published in eighteen fifty dream life in eighteen fifty one the same charm of style and matter pervades my farm of edgewood eighteen sixty three and what days at edgewood eighteen sixty four nor is it lacking in the volume of literary anecdote english lands letters and kings eighteen eighty nine and american lands and letters 1897 to 1899 Charles Dudley Warner whose delightful sketchbook my summer in a garden 1870 suggests comparison with the edgeworth books was born in massachusetts for many years he was a member of the famous literary coterie in hartford connecticut his professional duties he was also a journalist associating him with the new york group his pleasant volume of Backlog Studies appeared in eighteen seventy two in collaboration with Samuel L. Clemens Mark Twain he wrote The Gilded Age eighteen seventy three two volumes of travel sketches My Winter on the Nile and In the Levant were published in eighteen seventy six being a boy a picturesque presentation of youth on a New England farm belongs to the year following Warner was the author of numerous volumes including a life of washington Irving, eighteen eighty one and two realistic novels effective studies of new york society a little journey in the world eighteen eighty nine and the golden house eighteen ninety four richard henry stoddard whose early years were years of poverty was toiling in an iron foundry when he began his poetical career in new york a friendship with bayard taylor led to the publication of his first poems and to much literary work from eighteen fifty nine to eighteen seventy mr stoddard was employed in the new york custom house a position obtained with the friendly assistance of hawthorne from that time on he was engaged in editorial work and held a high place among our minor poets an autobiographic volume of recollections nineteen o three is not the least interesting of his prose works the poet's wife Elizabeth B. Stoddard eighteen twenty three to nineteen o two was also a writer of verse and the author of three noteworthy novels the morgesons eighteen sixty two two men eighteen sixty five and temple house eighteen sixty seven the Philadelphia writer george henry Boker, eighteen twenty three to eighteen ninety represents substantial attainment in the field of dramatic poetry his successful tragedy francesca da romini eighteen fifty six is possibly the best of several which embody that romantic theme thomas buchanan reed eighteen twenty two to eighteen seventy two like boker a pennsylvanian and a friend of taylor and the Stoddards, was also an artist as well as a poet Of all his verse, the battle lyric, Sheridan's Ride, 1865, is the poem inevitably associated with his name. By far the most interesting and important figure among the New York writers of this generation is that presented in the picturesque personality of Walt Whitman. Strictly speaking, he was not so much a member as one outside the literary circle just described. A man of rich vitality, lustily greeting life in all its phases emphasizing perhaps needlessly the physical side of life whitman strode forth on his course violating the conventionalities at every step not only in what he had to say as a poet was whitman unconventional he was unconventional also in the manner of saying He violated the established rules of poetical expression as boldly and as confidently as he disregarded the ordinary rule of silence concerning the topics which he discussed with such amazing frankness he was an innovator a representative of new ideas in the literary history of our country he stands unique at once the target of criticism he persevered in the delivery of what he certainly believed a message and now half a century and more since the publication of his earliest volume he still stands a somewhat problematical personality in the minds of many he appears a man of undoubted genius oceanic, elemental impressive to some he is the teacher of new-found truths the prophet and the poet of democracy walt whitman was born on a farm on long island his father was a descendant of pioneer new england stock his mother's ancestry was dutch while whitman was a child his parents removed to brooklyn where his father practiced the trade of carpenter and builder the boy was educated but scantily in the public schools and entered a printer's office at thirteen he was not continuously employed He found time to roam the moors and beaches of Long Island, in close touch with nature and delighting in the sea. He also found time to read much good literature. The Arabian Nights, Scott, Shakespeare, Ossian, the hero poetry of the Germans, and translations of the Greek dramatists and poets. There was a strange fitness in it, this abrupt, haphazard introduction to the masterpieces of literature. Dante, he read, in the shadows of a wood. Homer, he learned by heart in the shelter of great rocks, listening to the roar of the surf. At 15, he one day notices a ship under full sail and has the desire to describe it like a poet. At 18, he teaches a country school. At 20, he starts a weekly paper in his birthplace, then edits in leisurely fashion a daily paper in New York he writes romances and verse of the conventional sort for a magazine rides on the broadway omnibuses and makes staunch friends with the drivers is welcomed in the pilot-houses of the ferry-boats that ply on east river frequents the bowery and is a conspicuous figure among the bohemians who gather in faust restaurant at twenty-eight he is editor of the brooklyn eagle and then suddenly takes to the open road to see the country and get near the people this leisurely journey and working expedition as whitman termed it takes him through the middle states and down the ohio and mississippi to new orleans where for a time he works in a newspaper office retracing his steps in part he visits the great lakes and niagara and crosses into canada finally returning through central New York and down the Hudson. In 1855 appeared the first edition of Whitman's poems, entitled Leaves of Grass, a title which was used by the poet with each subsequent issue until the eighth edition in 1892. This first volume was perhaps more widely talked about than widely read. To most of those who did read it, it was both mystifying and repellent not only did they find here a startling freedom of speech which shocked them and an apparent egotism that amazed but they found also a form of expression that bade defiance to every principle of constructive art i celebrate myself and sing myself chanted the poet and what i assume you shall assume for every atom belonging to me as good belongs to you i loaf "'and invite my soul. "'I lean and loaf at my ease, "'observing a spear of summer grass. "'A child said, "'What is the grass?' "'Fetching it to me with full hands. "'How could I answer the child? "'I do not know what it is any more than he. "'I guess it must be the flag of my disposition, "'out of hopeful green stuff, woven.' or i guess it is the handkerchief of the lord a scented gift and remembrancer designedly dropped bearing the owner's name some way in the corners that we may see and remark and say whose or i guess the grass itself a child the produced babe of the vegetation and now it seems to me the beautiful uncut hair of graves This, indeed, seemed anarchy rather than art, and it is not surprising that a new generation of readers was born before the real significance of this strange verse began to clear. Yet Emerson recognized the strength of originality in the message, and wrote Whitman a friendly and appreciative letter, which, with very poor taste, Walt included in the next edition of his poems. In time, it became evident that the song of myself was to be interpreted as typical and universal rather than egotistic and that the spirit of walt whitman's poetry was democratic rather than personal the peculiar verse form whitman persistently maintained it represents his revolt from artificiality it was premeditated and indeed acquired with some effort of his compositions in this first volume he said i had great trouble in leaving out the stock poetical touches, but succeeded at last. Rhyme and meter were abolished, but not melody or rhythm. The device of the catalogue became his favorite method of suggestion, often picturesque, often musical, but often, too, unorganized and bewildering. In later years, Whitman's poetry became less turgid and, at times, even symmetrical. The objectionable, freedoms of the earlier work disappeared entirely and the poetical quality grew more tangible the civil war stirred whitman mightily the spirit of his verse during this period attains a dignity and strength that is notable but this is not all a brother who had enlisted was wounded and late in eighteen sixty two walt went to washington to nurse him for the next two years the poet gave himself wholly to the hospitals The service which he then performed, sometimes in the camps, sometimes on the field, can hardly be described. Stalwart, health-breathing, sympathetic, he assisted the surgeons, dressed the wounds, spoke tender encouragement to the suffering, scattered his simple little gifts among the sick, took the last message, and held the dying soldier in his arms. His own superb health finally broke in drum taps 1865, are included some of his finest compositions notably the vivid descriptive poems cavalry crossing a ford bivouac on a mountain side an army corps on the march and by the bivouac's fitful flame pictures intense in the realism the death of lincoln inspired two poems which command universal admiration when lilacs last in the dooryard bloomed and O oh, captain my captain this last poem is in rhymed stanzas and shows whitman's poetical power at its best the sea is the subject of many fine passages in these strange compositions a pomanock picture patrolling Barnegat, with husky haughty lips o oh sea may be cited as examples this last especially a marvel of descriptive power to the poems of this interesting group many as impressively suggestive could easily be added the bird songs in out of the cradle endlessly rocking and when lilacs last in the dooryard bloomed are remarkable lyrics to the man-of-war bird is another poem easily to be appreciated a picture dramatic in spirit and singularly vivid is that descriptive of the old mariner's passing in old salt Casaubon, far back related on my mother's side old salt Casaubon. i'll tell you how he died had been a sailor all his life was nearly ninety lived with his merry grandchild jenny house on a hill with view of bay at hand and distant cape and stretch to open sea the last of afternoons the evening hours for many a year his regular custom in his great armchair by the window seated sometimes indeed through half the day watching the coming going of the vessels he mutters to himself and now the close of all one struggling outbound brig one day baffled for long cross tides and much wrong-going at last a night-ball strikes the breeze Aright, her whole look veering and swiftly bending round the cape, the darkness proudly entering, cleaving as he watches. she's free, she's on her destination. these the last words when Jenny came, he sat there dead, Dutch Casaubon, old salt, related on my mother's side, far back, more and more as one learns to read Whitman and the reading should be aloud. His strength grows upon the reader. The eccentricity, the uncouth forms, the jargon of names and words disturb him less. In some degree he must respond to the pervading spirit of comradeship, of sympathy, boundless, indiscriminate. All mankind is brother and sister. Everything in nature is wholesome and divine. He says indifferently, and alike how are you friend to the president at his levee and he says good day my brother to cudge that lives in the sugarfield and both understand him and know that his speech is right this is certainly the spirit of democracy speaking the question is is it poetry in eighteen seventy three a stroke of paralysis incapacitated the poet and whitman who had held a clerkship in washington removed to camden new jersey where his later life was spent here he lived in comparative poverty but with the companionship of a few intimate friends and with the knowledge of a growing body of disciples who cared more for their master's teaching than about his style of utterance tributes of recognition from great britain and the continent gratified him he began to be regarded by some enthusiasts as an oracle and the poet seemed not averse to the role. Specimen Days and Collect Autobiographical Data in Prose was published in 1882. A new collection of verse, November Boughs, appeared in 1888. The 70th birthday of the poet was marked by greetings from all parts of the world. A new edition of Leaves of Grass was issued, together with the new poems collected under the title Sands at seventy, a final volume Goodbye, my fancy, eighteen ninety one contained his last poems Whitman died march twenty sixth, eighteen ninety two. The influence of Whitman has not yet been noticeable in American verse, but meanwhile the circle of appreciative readers has been constantly increasing, even outside the so called Whitman cult an intelligent reading of whitman is wholesome and invigorating as to his place among poets that is a matter yet to be determined concerning walt whitman and his work there is a superabundance of material the best recent biography with a satisfactory criticism of his verse is the life of walt whitman by bliss perry see also walt whitman by george r carpenter in the englishmen of letters series a good short sketch of the poet is the volume in The Beacon Biographies, by I. H. Platt. The study of Whitman in Trent's American literature is impartial and admirable. The volume of Selections from the Prose and Poetry of Walt Whitman, edited by O. L. Triggs, and Selected Poems of Walt Whitman, edited by Arthur Stedman, in Fiction, Fact, and Fancy series, may prove more profitable as an introduction to the poet than an edition of his complete works end of part three of chapter six